Welcome to the show. In this one, I talked to longtime Alaska sports journalist Doyle Woody. Doyle got his start at the Anchor Daily News in 1983, covering high school sports. From there, he moved on to covering college basketball for a short period of time, before he began covering hockey. And that's where he stayed for the rest of his journalism career. For 34 years, Doyle reported on and built relationships within Alaska's hockey community. He says that back in his early days at ADN, they were generous with travel expenses. So he would travel with the University of Alaska Anchorage Seawolf hockey team, out of state, about eight times a year. Those trips were part of what Doyle calls old-timey hockey a time when it was played rough rather than technical. He says that he appreciates how the game has changed in the last few decades, though, how it's less about fighting and violence and more about speed and skill. If you're looking for other Alaskan podcasts to listen to, I recommend checking out The Mediocre Alaskan. In it, Jeff Lund hosts conversations that cover everything in Southeast Alaska and beyond. Fishing and hunting are favorites but so were conversations about things like basketball and entrepreneurship. Here's a clip from episode 214, Being Alaska Rich, with Brandon Fifield, who's a co-host on the Alaska Wild Project podcast. You know, the whole idea that, oh, your teacher just appears when they turn the lights on in the school never occurred to me, and so that stereotype just seems so weird, and it just seems so natural to have a life outside your job, and so growing up, it's just what I saw, and I thought, this is how you do it. Okay, these people are happy. Yep. Why are they happy? Well, they love their job, but then they also love what they do outside of work. Yeah. And it just seems so natural to be able to, you know, the better you are showing up to work, the better you're going to be at work. If your yep. life sucks outside of work, then, oh, my gosh, like how can – it's great to love your job, no question about it, yeah. and feel purpose in your job, but, you know, you got to have that life too. And So, yeah, Kowalk yeah. is a cool place to grow up, and Ketchikan's nice, a little bit bigger, and – um yeah, it's great. But I yeah, am I jealous of the it. road system, man. I would love to drive up yeah. into the brooks. Well, a guy who enjoys the, the fruits of our, of our uh, you know, ability to get out in the woods, it's, you would definitely love it out here, too. You would find lots and lots and lots of things to do, I'm sure. Um, just like we would love the adjustment of, you know, being able to go out and deer hunt and steelhead fish and, you know, the, the closer proximity to salmon and halibut and those kinds of things. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribed to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine.
And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Also, you can now get crude apparel and merchandise at TeePublic. From t-shirts to hoodies to stickers and even baby onesies. Just go to the Crude Instagram and click the link in the bio. Okay, back to Doyle Woody. Doyle says that there's a difference in playing the game of hockey and understanding it. To play hockey is to go through the motions. Understanding it is more intuitive. It means having a low panic point and knowing how to buy time. These qualities are what distinguish good players from great players. As far as Alaska hockey players go, Scott Gomez and Dean Larson come to mind. Both were intuitive players who knew how to buy time and space in order to make plays. I want to add a quick note here. There's a point in this conversation where I recall a memory about an incident on the ice at an Anchorage Aces game. I'm not sure if this actually happened the way I remember it. I was young when it happened, and memory is a tricky thing. Okay, on to my conversation with Doyle Woody. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. Right before I pressed record, you you said that you really miss Alaska. Desperately. Why is that? Well, I spent almost my entire life there. For first of all, so you know it's home for me, no matter where I live. Um, I have a lot of my closest friends still live there. Um, I, I miss winters. Um, and that, that about covers it. You know, it's, I think mostly that it's home. Mm -hmm. It always feels like home. Um, we've lived in Nashville for about, I always get confused if it's four or five years now. Um, and this is a wonderful town. I, I, I really enjoy this town. My, my wife, Sarah is absolutely crazy about this town. Um, she doesn't miss Alaska very much at all. She got tired of those winters. Yeah, um, tough. but I miss it. And I think part of that's just a reflection of, you know, I spent um, more than 40 years of my life there, um, closer to 50. Mm -hmm. And you spent a lot of your journalism career in Alaska reporting on hockey, right? I spent my entire, with the exception of the first six months of getting out of college, I spent the entirety of my journalism career there. And I spent, in some manner, I spent all of it writing about hockey. I, I really spent, you know, 95% of it uh, being the principal hockey writer at the Anchorage Daily News. Um, so yeah, that was a huge part of my career. Did you ever report on the Anchorage Aces? Oh yes, I um, I was I I was the principal writer on the Aces from the two thousand six seven season um, until the demise of the franchise in two thousand seventeen. And prior to that, I kind of parachuted in fairly regularly, uh, particularly for playoffs and stuff. So yeah. Okay, so. I wonder if this story predates your reporting, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. So 
<laughs> so when I was a kid, for a couple years, my family had seasons passes to Aces games. And I remember my favorite player was this guy. He was a goon. And his name was Peacock. Do you remember him? Peacock? Boy, I, I'm really... Was that his nickname or his real name? I, You know, I'm not sure. I know he had... Um, in, in my memory, he was kind of this skinny super tall guy and he had like a red afro holy cow i wonder why that's throwing me so much that should not be throwing me so much i'll i'll have to at some point reach out to matt nevola who covered the aces for a long time for the daily news okay and has a memory like a steel trap as opposed to my 60 year old memory <laughs> no huh would this have been in the 90s it might have been in the 90s it might have been yeah, you know, like I, that was a time when I was principally covering Seawolf hockey, which was was kind of still a bigger deal at that point. And I would, like I said, I would parachute in, particularly for the playoffs or something. Although I did once, and I don't know um, what, pro I can't even remember what prompted this. I think it was 1999. I once went on a 10-game, um, 19-day road trip with the Anchorage Aces of the old West Coast Hockey League to California and Arizona. And... Uh, man that was that was old time hockey and it was a fun fun trip but i feel felt like i needed to go to rehab afterwards <laughs> can you tell me more about that trip yeah we just you know back then the daily news um was very generous with travel um expenses and and, and a lot of sports writers we went out and traveled a lot like i traveled um constantly with the Seawolf hockey team. And that usually meant like generally eight trips outside a year. Um, and, and so we got the idea of like, Hey, they're taking this crazy road trip where they're playing 10 games in 19 days. And they're just in a bus the whole time. And it's San Diego and Bakersfield and Fresno. And it was, um, we were in Phoenix, Arizona, and it was just this, this crazy trip. And they thought, Hey, this might make a fun story. So I um, went out with them for 19 days and was in the bus the whole time and at every game and wherever they went, I went and, mm -hmm. and then um, wrote a long ass story about it. Do you remember any stories from that time, that, that, that trip? I have, I have many stories. We, <laughs> at one point, we got kicked out of an amusement park. I think that was in Bakersfield. Um, it had go-karts because we kept crashing into each other on purpose, which was apparently against protocol. So we got kicked out of there. Um, we arrived one afternoon. We bust from san diego to fresno and i'd never been to fresno and a lot of these players had been to fresno on previous road trips and we got to the hotel and it was on a sunday we got there in kind of the middle of the afternoon and everybody was going to congregate it was at this holiday inn that had an atrium and the bar was in the atrium and we were all going to congregate at whatever four or five and watch football and and drink because that's what you did mm -hmm. and so it was a really nice day and i think this was like in december or january and so I, I got to my room and, and threw on my running stuff. And I was just going to go out and go for a run. And I was going out the front door of the hotel. And I ran into Sean Rowe, who was an Aces player, a winger, and, and, uh, a, and a very funny guy. And he says, and he looks at me quizzically and he says, what are you doing? 
And I said, I'm going for a run. And he said, can you outrun a bullet? And I was like, what? (laughs) And he he takes me outside and he points and we're near um, a highway. And he says, and he points across the highway and he goes, don't go over there on your run. He goes, he goes, we had some contact with some people in those neighborhoods um, last time we were in Fresno. And it was, he said it was very tense. So it's not a great neighborhood. So I went and ran the other direction. So he was a, he was a funny guy. Can you outrun a bullet? I'll never forget that. (laughs) (laughs) So I was just jogging my memory and maybe you can help me remember this player's last name but his name was uh dean dean something probably dean larson there we go dean larson and he was on the team um at the same time as peacock gotcha huh so i'm gonna tell you the story even though you don't remember peacock because it happened during those those two years those two seasons that my parents had tickets and um so i have this memory of a pretty gruesome scene on the ice at at, at a particular game at an aces so a- game no way <laughs> exactly right so the aces were playing a team where there was this mutual animosity between the two and at a certain point i remember a player fell on the ice and then another player on the opposing team skated by and as he passed the guy on the ice he stomped on his neck with a skate (laughs) and blood started squirting out of the cut onto the ice and you know medics responded relatively quickly and i think the cops were eventually called and they showed up uh i mean it was it was quite a scene is that ring any bells to you it doesn't but what does ring a bell to me was um there was an incident because I remember I was there for it, um, where um, a, an Anchorage Aces defenseman was angling toward a guy on the boards who was coming at him, and there was a collision, and the guy's skate um, made a really um, horrific gash in his forearm, mm-hmm. um, and the kind of gash where it was, um, I mean, he needed medical help immediately and i remember that was super gruesome um just um just even thinking about it now makes me kind of weak weak stomach but his his name was i do remember his name he's still involved in hockey somewhere as a coach his name was dave shanichny and and it started with a p as in paul the spelling of his name and it was an eastern european name um he was he was canadian it was an Eastern European name, and it was there were so many Z's and Y's in the name that <laughs> f- for years, even though he only played there maybe a couple of years at most, but for years I had a little piece of um, paper taped to my laptop computer that had the spelling of his last name because it was just so complicated and I could never get it right without having it there. Um, but anyway, my... My then girlfriend, now wife, um, always referred to him. His name was Dave Shinichny, and she always called him Davy Alphabet. <laughs> that's great. You know, I feel like that—that's the type of story that can really only come from 
like, uh, say, a journalist, you know, who <laughs> you I mean, you have to know how to spell that name. How often were you actually spelling his name, though? Enough that like I would like that's that season. Um, I always had it um, there. Um, and I just occasionally I would pull something out of my memory that would be a reference to him in a story when he didn't even play there anymore. And I just always kept it there for years, just in case. Um, and I, I had a difficult time for whatever reason, um, correctly spelling an Alaska Aces goalie, uh, JP Lamaru. So I think he only played one season there. I had his name on my, on my laptop forever. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's just some things you just little tricks to keep from making, making mistakes. You know, I, um, I was just recently reminded of, um, during these Olympics that are going on right now, a former Seawolf defenseman named Matt Robinson, uh, who plays professionally in Russia now played for team Canada for the second Olympics in a row. Um, and his name was Matt, it is Matt Robinson. He spells Matt M-A-T. One year when he was playing for the Seawolves in Anchorage, there was a player for the Alaska Aces, also named Matt Robinson, who spelled Matt with two T's. And I, I just, I think I got it right most of the time, but I hesitate to wonder how many times I botched that. I think that would be confusing to read. You know, as a reader of that. Yeah, it was, I just, what, I mean, what are the odds? Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, that, that old timey hockey reporting, you know, the 10 games in 19 days trip. Um, <laughs> when you think about the stories you covered, do, do any others stick out in your mind? Um, well, I, I, when Scott Gomez was a rookie in the National Hockey League, I went out to New Jersey um, to spend a few days with him and um, and just kind of chronicle. He was this hotshot rookie. He was only about two seasons into it or two months into his career, and he was kind of taking the league by storm, and he was already a favorite to win the uh, Rookie of the Year award. And it was pretty clear even then when he was 19, he was going to be the best player who would ever come from Alaska. So as we did at the time, this was, uh, I think, in November of 99, because he was a rookie in 99-00. We went out to, or I went out to New Jersey to write a story about him. I spent like four or five days out there. And uh, I think I watched two or three games. The last game was a Saturday afternoon game. And we went out after that. And uh, remember, he's just 19. Mm -hmm. um, but he's a professional hockey player. And so he hangs out with professional hockey players and, one of them on his team happens to own a bar, which is where we end up. <laughs> and I have a, a pretty early flight the next, not too early, but a pretty early flight the next day to go um, back home via Seattle where um, my girlfriend at the time lived. Well, one thing led to another and we were out quite, quite late. And uh, and I, I, I missed my flight completely. Didn't even come close. <laughs> um, to to make my flight. Meanwhile, Scott was um, at practice, and I had um, checked out of the hotel and was just hanging out at his house because he was um, going to give me a ride 
to the airport. And then of course, when he got up, he was like, what, like, are you like, are you ready to go? And I'm like, uh, even if we hustle, I'm not going to make this flight. I said, I'll just get a later <laughs> flight. So anyway, but I was like, I got this girlfriend. She was really looking forward to seeing me. I think I'm really looking forward to seeing her. I got to call her and tell her I'm not on this plane. And I said, she's a huge hockey fan. So and he, I got called her up and he's like, give me the phone. And he, and he says, oh, hey, Helen, this is Scott Gomez. And she was just, of course, thrilled to death to be speaking to Scott Gomez. Yeah. So he smoothed it out for me. He's like, he's like, we're getting him on a plane this afternoon. It'll be in tonight. So, Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, and I, you know, um, I had a lot of good, good times um, on the road. I, I, I met my um, wife on a Seawolf hockey trip to Duluth, Minnesota where I had um, visited a bunch of bar or a bunch of times. We met in the Pioneer Bar in Duluth, Minnesota, where I'd also um, been many times. And one thing led to another. And a year and a half later, she moved to Alaska and we ended up getting married. That's funny. You met at a Pioneer Bar that wasn't in Alaska. Crazy, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Full circle. It really is. It really is. And and earlier you said that uh, you know Scott Gomez was was the best player to come out of Alaska. Is that still true? Is, yes. is Scott Gomez? Yeah. He is okay. Yeah, I don't even. Um, I mean, there have been other very good players. Matt Carl was a very good defenseman in the NHL, and Brandon Dubinsky was uh, a really good center. Ty Conklin was a terrific goalie, but Scott is clearly the most. Uh, and those guys would tell you this. Um, is the most accomplished player um, from from Alaska. Played the most games, has the most points, uh, has two Stanley Cups, was Rookie of the Year. Yeah, he's he's clearly the most accomplished. And um, just a, in my experience, I've known him since he was about twelve. And in my experience, just a wonderful guy um, who still lives in the three bedroom, one bath ranch house in Airport Heights that he grew up in. Really, I didn't know that. Yeah, even though, you know, he has all the money. Um, that's just kind of, it's really indicative of who he is and what kind of family he comes from. Um, I'm sure he's, you know, they got a, he, he slash they, his family, have a place on the Kenai um, as well. And I'm, I'm sure it's not a cabin with an outhouse. Um, <laughs> but I mean, he's, you know, his, his, um, his, his father was a steel worker. Um, was his career and he's from a very working class family from a very working class neighborhood and that you know even though he's a millionaire tens of times over um, that never left him and I've always been impressed by that Mm -hmm. and what do you think sets him apart from other players well he he unlike anybody who had come from Alaska to that point and really since he saw the game just differently from other people, and that's a gift that I mean a lot of really good hockey players have. Um, and that's what set him apart is he he understood how things were going to unfold before they unfolded. Mm-hmm. And not to get too cliche stuff, but he really understood, um, like a lot of young players don't, how to kind of buy time and space to make plays and to allow teammates to get into better positions um and and he he knew how to exploit all that and it's um 
for people like him, it's really hard to explain for them to explain it because it just seems so natural to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, you know, it's just kind of the gifts special players have. You know, thinking about those special gifts that Scott Gomez has, can you think of a time, um, maybe it was one of the first times you saw him play where you're like, this guy, this guy's got something. Yeah, I saw him play when he was 12 years old. Uh, people had been telling me for probably the better part of a year or two, there's this kid who's like literally a kid, a little kid. Mm-hmm. You should see him play sometime. And I can't remember. I think he was 12. It was a regional tournament. It was at Ben Bokey. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go see this kid. Um, and so I watched, I don't know, I think I watched a period or two of a game and nobody had to tell me which one he was. It was just, you know, I'm no super scout or anything, but it was just glaringly obvious of like, there's this one kid who's just ridiculously better than everybody here. And who was thinking this game, you know, like I said, he was 12 at the time. And I'm thinking he's thinking this game like a grown man. Um, It's just, it's just crazy. And that was kind of the obvious gift. And he was, he also stood out um, because he, um, had a very peculiar skating style. He's um, basically pigeon-toed and knock-kneed. Um, and so he, he has an interesting way of carrying himself. But on skates, he um, was very knock-kneed, so he, was, he didn't look quite like everybody else. Um, but it was just, yeah, it was just, it was just to anybody who knew even a little bit about hockey, and that's about how much I knew, it was pretty obvious that he was... Um, several cuts above all of his peers he skated like a grown man what does that mean he thought the game like a grown man okay um you know a lot of times when kids are 12 13 14 and and this is true like 30 years ago it's it's less true today because the kids are just more sophisticated and training is more sophisticated but they they just go 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 they go a thousand miles an hour and they're just little bundles of energy and i used to column and this would be true um for i think a decent amount of college players back in that era of like yeah you can skate a million miles an hour and you're accomplishing nothing um he because you're not thinking the game you're just playing um the game physically um he thought the game is the best way i can put it he just he he thought like somebody you know well more than 12. He, he you know when i saw him when he was 12 he thought the game better than a lot of guys i covered who were in college and and that's just you know my opinion but um he really did and it was just that just set him apart um because i when i was talking about how you buy time and space mm-hmm. um he was doing that when he was 12. and like i i knew guys who were you know in college who didn't think the game that well, who didn't understand it that well. And do you know if he, if he's just intuitive, if he just, if he just has that in him, like a, you know, he's just special, you know, he's a savant. Yeah. That's a, that's exactly what that was. I mean, it wasn't like, okay. he wasn't like he came from a hockey family um, with, you know, an older brother or a father who could teach him that stuff. And I know, I mean, I do know, he, he had a lot of great coaching um, when he when he was young. But all of those coaches would tell you, I didn't teach him that. Mm-hmm. 
that 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 was just you know he's preternatural. That was something he was born with. Um, and like I said, a lot of players like that have a difficult time explaining what they do because they just do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's if you went back and you watched some tape with them, they could explain what what they did, but often they will struggle to do that because it's just it seems like the most natural thing in the world to them. And sometimes they will um, have a real difficult time explaining that to other people. I know in 2005, Scotty played for the Alaska Aces because the NHL had a lockout for a full season that year. They didn't have a season. Mm -hmm. So he was coming down from the NHL two levels to the ECHL. And I remember... Um, Matt Neville had covered the team then, and I would cover him occasionally. But I, I just went to a couple of the first games he played for them, um, just and just sat in the stands, just to kind of watch as a fan of hockey. And I can't tell you the number of times he he did things to set team teammates up for easy goals, where they didn't score those goals because they were so unaware of his ability to get them the puck in situations where people at that level don't usually receive the puck because um, guys just aren't that good. Okay. Um, and so guys that he was playing with had to literally learn of like, when I'm anywhere near the net and I'm on the ice with Scott and Scott has the puck, I need to get my stick on the ice. I can't be carrying it around with my stick at waist level where it's doing me no good. If I have my stick on the ice, he's li- he might literally pass me a puck through a crowd of four people that literally might hit my stick blade and create a goal. Yeah. Um, and, and so that was kind of a reminder of how special a player he was. That he makes other players better just by being on the same team. Exactly. How often have you encountered that in other players? Well, I mean, as you, um, as you get into higher levels of hockey, um, you, you see it often. I just, I just don't know that. I don't think to this day I ever. Well, I know to this day I've never seen a kid at that age, at like twelve or thirteen, who did something like something like that. Um, you know, you had talked about Dean Larson um, playing for the playing for the Anchorage Aces. You know, he had a great career at UAA, and he's he's still their all time leading scorer. Um, he had that same kind of gift. He just saw the game differently from almost all of his peers. Um, the, a, a problem for, for Dean, unfortunately, was he just, he just kind of came of age in the wrong era. He was a very small man, um, you know, maybe 5'8", maybe 150 when he was in college. And that was back at a time when the NHL was all about bruising six foot to 200 pound guys. Um, okay. And I always say, you know, if, if, if he'd have been in college and well, if he'd have been like in his late teens, early twenties, um, in 2005, more 2010, he probably, he would have never been at UAA cause he would have probably been in the NHL. Um, he was he was just that good, but he played in an era where 
small guys just could not get the time of day. Um, he came to UAA. He literally had no other firm Division One offer. Um, He's from Calgary, Alberta, and just was fantastic in, in the Alberta League, but everybody passed on him because he was small. You know, I mean, like, really small. And he had, like, I know he had, I think he had some Division Three offers. And, and UAA, Brush Christensen, his staff recruited him. I mean, Brush knew how special he was. And I remember when he came in, Brush just did not oversell people that often. And he was like, you're going you're gonna to be kind of blown away by this kid. And so he came in and played at UAA in 1988 as a freshman and scored a point in his first 18 games, um, which kind of tells you how good he was. Um, so that's a, an example of another player I've seen like that where you're like, oh, this guy, just, he's just playing at a different level. Besides those two players, you know, Scott Gomez and Dean Larson, who else? Who else comes to mind? Uh, I think Matt Carl. He was a he's the best defenseman ever to come from Alaska, and you know he was really he thought the game really well and was really gifted and was a um, really nice skater. Um, I think what kind of what all those guys have in common is um, I don't even know what they would call it nowadays. They used to call it having a low panic point. Um, they're just super super composed players. They just don't let anything get to them. And they make a lot of the hard stuff look easy. Mm -hmm. And so that makes the game for easy, easier for their teammates. He was a, um, a really good example of that. Um, Brian Swanson is a guy from Eagle River who played, um, I think he played 70 NHL games and had a really good career in, uh, in, in Germany, principally in Germany, and then won a Kelly Cup with the Aces um, at the end of his career. Um, and he was he was like that too. Um, he scored over 200 points in college, but he was the same way where um, he was just really thought the game um, at a super high level. Um, and another guy who, you know, was a, he was a little bit, I think, I think I'm, a, I'm biased probably, but I think he was a little bit of a victim of not quite playing in the right era and never being quite with the right team. Um, but he had a really, really good career. And um, he, he now, this is how old we are, he now has two daughters who play um, college hockey. And he has a teenage son who um, is a prospect. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So, God, just saying that makes me feel 100. <laughs> you know, in in your experience, how often did that happen to Alaskan hockey players where, you know, you recognize that they were born in the wrong era? Not, not much anymore because the game has um, slowly bent um, in the past couple of, couple, three decades to a game where um, everything is really predicated on speed and skill and it's a lot less of a physical game and it's a lot less of a violent game. Um, you know, we know a lot more now about head injuries particularly um, than, than we did back then. Um, so the game has changed completely. Um, you know, and that's just kind of how, that's just kind of life. Things, things change. Um, 
And unfortunately, some people, it was just the wrong era era for them. But, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, Brian would tell you he had a great career. Anyway, he played 70 games in the NHL, and he's proud of that, and he should be. And he had a fabulous career in Germany and, um, and with the Aces. And uh, he's still, I guess he just, I was texting with him somewhat recently um, about his kids I guess he's actually living, he and Lynn and his wife live in Anchorage now. Um, but he, he's, he, now his career is, he um, is part owner of brewery in Eagle River there. I'm trying to, um, what the hell is that called? Odd Man Brewery, I think is what it's called. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's Odd Man. Or the beer, one of the beers is Odd Man Rush or something like that. It's a hockey name. What do you think about the game being played less violent now? I, I kind of knowing, like a lot of people, knowing what we know now about head entries, um, mm-hmm. I, I like the game better now. Every now and then I wish it was a little more physical, but the game is played at such a high speed and such a high skill level that I, I just, as a fan of hockey, I really enjoy that now. I, sometimes I see some things and I'm just like, I can't believe the things people do now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was watching, I was watching the um, Olympic final, the women's final the other night, um, the U S and Canada. And I'm telling you the the speed of the women's game is, is exciting. It was just electrifying. I was just like, I'd forgotten how good the very highest level, which is Canada, US, of the women's game has got. That was, um, this is just entertaining as hell. But yeah, I, I mean, I see things that people do now. Like, you watch highlights and see what Connor McDavid does. And granted, he's the best player in the world, but it's just that somebody is that fast on skates just is mind blowing and can mm-hmm. do the things with a puck at at that top speed is just remarkable. Um, so I really, I really enjoy the modern game. Do you think players are better now? Oh, clearly. Yeah. They're better trained. They're better conditioned. They're better trained. They have better equipment. Um, they have access to, you know, skills training to mental training. Coaching is better than it's ever been. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's a, um, at the highest levels, it's clearly a year-round sport. I mean, these guys, you know, take a week, maybe two off at the end of the season, and they're right back in the gym and right back on the ice working on skills. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's the best hockey that's ever been played is being played right now. Doesn't mean it doesn't necessarily mean it's the most exciting. Um, cause I would, I was having this discussion with a friend a few months ago of like, what's the best hockey you've ever seen? And I said, um, it's, I'm trying to get the year right. I think it was 86. It was the Canada cup was a off season, um, like tournament and primarily in the seventies and eighties that pitted the U S Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's old enough that it was Soviet union. Um, Canada, Sweden, Finland, all the great hockey powers. And the 
1980, I think it was 80, no, it's 1987, that's what it was, Canada Cup. The final was the best two out of three series between um, the Soviet Union and Canada. And um, Canada, Soviet Union won the first game in overtime. Canada won, I want to say, the second game in double or triple overtime, I think it was. And won the third game with the game-winning goal with less than two minutes to play. All five, all three games were six to five was the, was the final score. And it was somewhere in a trunk, somewhere in my attic. I still have some v, uh, VHS tapes of that. And, uh, yeah, it was just like the best hockey I've ever seen. And it was played at, like a, at a speed in that era that was really hard to fathom. Um, but is it better than like the very best today? Probably not. But although, you know, you had, that was kind of the first time uh, Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux played together, which was just super electrifying. I mean, those are maybe the two best guys who ever played. I don't know. You know, there's this theory and I'm trying to remember the name of the theory, but I forget. But it says that once one person elevates the skill level of a sport, then that skill level is elevated for the entire sport, right? Because individual players are able to see that that thing can be done. Are you familiar mm -hmm. with this? Yeah, vaguely, and I don't know what it's called, but I think it's a real thing because I, I think I'm, I'm a bit of a hockey nerd. And the other thing I'm an athletic thing I'm a nerd about is running. And um, in, in elite level running right now, particularly distance running, um, which is what I'm most interested in, some times are being run that are um, just kind of mind blowing. And part of it is this new thing in the last few years of super shoes. But part of it is also um, people are being very public about what they do for training, like the very best people. And other athletes are seeing what is possible and it, I think it's kind of pushing them to train better and smarter, um, not necessarily harder, but smarter. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, so you have a situation where some men and some women at the elite level of running are doing some amazing stuff. And a lot of people are coming along for the ride who are, you know, talented athletes in their own right. Um, but yeah, I think people nowadays look at, some of the things Connor McDavid does, and he does a lot of training in the off season with the skills coach. And, and I'll bet he does sometimes in season with a skills coach. And they look like really gifted players like Patrick Kane, uh, the Blackhawks, an American guy who has always been kind of renowned for his skill level. And he's very, um, very much a person who trains from everything I've read a lot in the off season with a skills coach. And I think, um, people see what players like those players have done and, and think, I, I got to keep up with the Joneses. Mm -hmm. you know, I got to, I got to put in the work and put in this specialized work to become a better player. Mm -hmm. Something that I, that I keep thinking about because, you know, I, I do, I do a fair share of writing myself and I know that when you write about someone, they, they become kind of a character in a story. And, and I wonder if, you know, you writing about Alaskan hockey players for so long, 
I imagine that they become part of your life. You know, like I said, they're characters in your stories. I wonder if, if sometimes do you maybe have, um, trouble or do you forget that they're like real people? No, not, I, I never did. Um, okay. because I was, I was actually, when I was an active journalist and I'm not any longer, I, I, always consider when I wrote about athletes that I was writing about people. Mm -hmm. What they did was athletic. That's not who they were. Um, and I always, I always try to remember that I'm much more interested when I read a really good story about an athlete. It's invariably because I learn about who they are as a person, not, not who they are as an athlete. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's like um, Scott Gomez is a good example. When he when he was really young, he obviously is a smart enough guy to know that I'm really good at what I do. Um, but he's also was raised in a way in which um, he never had a big head about it, or or, or ob, you know never obviously had a big head about it. And and as I got to know him and know his family, I realized that's because he comes from a very grounded family, you know, a, from a blue collar family, a very down to earth family. Um, and so I, you know, I was always more interested in him um, as a, honestly, as a, as much interested as him as a person, um, as, as a hockey, as a hockey player. Um, and I always, I, I, um, always try to keep that in mind when I was writing like profiles and stuff. It's like, well, you know, if you're just writing a profile of a, a runner or a hockey player, it's like, you know, you do that all the time. What makes this person different? Mm-hmm. And not just what they, you know, obviously athletic accomplishments set them apart from the rest of us or their peer groups and stuff. But I always wanted to kind of find, you know, learn more about the person. Um, and that's kind of one thing I, I really miss, um, about being out of journalism. Sometimes I'll see, I'll see a person and I think I'll read a story or I'll listen to a podcast and I will just think, Oh, please ask this question, ask this question, ask this question. I want to know more about this person. I don't want to, like, I listen to a lot of running podcasts. It's like, okay, enough about the training crap. Yeah. Let's, you know, let's, I like, I swear sometimes I wish somebody would just ask a question of, of, you know, some of my runners who I think are the most interesting people of like, what's the last book you read? You know, that might tell me something about the person. I don't want to know about the last workout you did. You know, tell me about the person or. Um, like when I read a story about an athlete, it's like, I'd, I'd like to know kind of about pivotal events in their life who shaped who they are. And they don't, you know, oftentimes they're not athletic stories. Um, you know, there's something maybe about their family, um, or about where they grew up or, um, you know, one, one thing, I don't know how it is for journalists who live other places, but one thing I always found unique about, Alaska hockey players was um, they they would just always pick up the phone 
And, and, you know, a lot of these guys I covered before, there was really um, much in the way of cell phones or before there was really much in the way of the Internet. But it's amazing how these guys would always pick up the phone and always call back. I, I'll i give you a great, great example. One time in 2005, um, Gomez was playing for the Aces and they were in... I want to say they were in Peoria, Illinois. They were on a road trip. And I needed him for something in a story. And I called him. And I clearly got up. He, he had a cell phone in 2005. He clearly was in a bar. Mm-hmm. And he was like, it's really loud in here. Let me go outside. <laughs> and so he went outside. And I, was, I told him, like, I'll try not to keep you too long. He's like, yeah, it's really fucking cold out here. <laughs> and I said, I'll be really quick, Scott. And as I was talking to him, he, um, I can't put it any other way. He got panhandled. <laughs> and so I'm listening to him getting panhandled. And he says, hey, hey, he says, Woody, hold on a second. And I can hear him talking to the guy. He's like, hey, just just hold on a sec. Here, you go. here man. <laughs> Gives the guy some money. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's just very Alaskan guy walking, walk. He was like, yeah, he'll talk to me. He'll walk outside. And, um, I like another time I remember something like that happened was in, I guess it was like 2016 or 17, Matt Carl retired. Oddly enough, he was here in Nashville when his career came to an end. And I think he had been put on waivers or something and he just decided he was going to retire. So I was actually at, the arena getting ready for uh i can't remember if it's a seawolf game or an aces game so i um i left matt carl a message on his cell phone saying hey man i'm you know sorry to hear your career's over but i'd love to talk to you about it um and he was always always good about calling back and i don't know it couldn't have been 25 minutes later and he called back and he started by apologizing for taking so long to call back. And I literally, I literally said, man, it's been, you know, this is a huge event in your life and in your family's life. And it's been like 25 minutes. You can, I really appreciate how kind you are, but you don't need to be apologizing. But um, I was always just really thankful um, that people like, you know, him and other hockey players and, Nate Thompson who still plays in the NHL is the same way um, that they're just, you know, and now we can just communicate by text, but they just always get back to you just first thing right away. And do you think that that's because maybe, you know, hockey players from Alaska are more down to earth or, or what makes them unique in that way? Well, I can't, I can't say that, you know, that that's not happening to, um, a guy I know and haven't talked to in a million years named Jess Myers, who covers college hockey in Minnesota. Okay. You know, I can't say that there's not some dude from Roseau, Minnesota, who calls him back, like, at the drop of a hat. Um, but I do know that just in, in general, that people in the hockey community my entire career were super generous with their time. And, um, and, and that, I think players appreciated um, that that their accomplishments were noted, um, and I I think they got to know me well enough to know that I would try to do the best, most honest writing that I could about them, mm-hmm. um, for good or bad. Uh, that I wouldn't 
take gratuitous cheap shots, uh, that I would just try to tell a good story and get at the truth. And I mean, that was always my ambition. Um, and I think, you know, maybe they recognize that. But it's also, it's also the fact that a lot of these guys, you, you often first meet them or first talk to them because a lot of times, you know, your first contact with them is a phone call when they're playing outside somewhere when they're 16. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they know that you're not a, a kind of bandwagon jumper, you know, when they got to the NHL or something. Like I always kept a really close tabs on guys when they were getting close to the NHL because it's going to be a big deal um, when they made their NHL debut. And, um, and, you know, we wanted to certainly have that story first, um, in, in the, in the newspaper. Um, and so you gotta remember, that's like the greatest thing that's probably happened to them in their life is that night when they play their first NHL game, the dream they've had since they were a little kid just happened. Um, they're super excited. Their family's super excited. Usually their family's trying to get to wherever the game is to be there for it. It's like the biggest deal there, this player is traveling from somewhere to the big team. Um, it's a really big deal. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, there's some guy in Anchorage trying to get up with them. And, you know, their phone is probably blowing up, you know, with all their friends and all their family. And yet these guys invariably, every single one of them, when they made their debut, like in the cell phone era, called me, mm-hmm. you know, um, I can remember, I can remember talking to Nate Thompson. I was sitting in my car in the parking lot at Sullivan Arena. Um, and this was, I think I had just come in from a road trip the night before something like the previous night he'd made his NHL debut. And I, and I had barely gotten something in to, um, into the newspaper. Um, and then like the next morning he was like, called me, called me and was apologizing because I had, he didn't call me last night. You know, and I think that was probably because one, he's a good, Nate's a really good dude. Um, and two, I'd known him when he was a kid, you know, and he knew I wasn't some guy just, you know, some guy he'd never heard of from the newspaper trying to get up with him. He's like, oh, I know Doyle because I met him at Ben Boki when I was 15. Yeah. Um, so um, I think I was fortunate to have those kind of connections with players from when they were really young. So it wasn't like I was just like some guy parachuting in going, hey, let me tell your story. Yeah. Doyle, is there a TV on in the background? Oh, I think um, I'm over at a um, house at a buddy's house. I think he actually came home finally. Okay. Uh, <laughs> is it is it super loud? No, I actually was just thinking that maybe you had a TV on in front of you, like Sports Center or something. Oh no, no. Okay. <laughs> no, I would m- much more likely if I was going to do two things at once, I would be reading a book. Okay. <laughs> that would be impressive if you were if you were reading a book right now as well. <laughs> I've got a whole pile of them. There's never enough time. So I'm going to take your advice and ask you a personal question. Sure. One of the ones that you actually just suggested. So what's the last book you read? The last book I read, I just took back to the library today. It's called The Eye Test. Um, it has a super long subtitle um, that I can't remember, but it's about kind of still utilizing in our lives the human component in this age of analytics Mm -hmm. 
And it's written by a guy named Chris Jones, who's a terrific writer. He wrote for a long time for Esquire magazine. And it was just not a very long book. It's like 250 pages. It was just a really interesting read with a lot of um, kind of good narrative storytelling and, and, and some deep thoughts. Um, and he, he can be pretty funny. Here it is. It's called The Eye Test, A Case for Human Creativity in the Age of Analytics. Um, yeah, that was really good. And you do a lot of reading. I read a ton. Yeah. Well, I guess I shouldn't say a ton. That sounds sounds like a very egotistical. I love to read. Let's put it that way. And I, I read a lot of mysteries and, and I um, read histories. But yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I... I, there's never enough time to read. Um, when I used to travel a lot covering hockey, um, obviously you live in Alaska, it necessitates a lot of flights. I loved getting on planes because that would be like, I would love to get on that direct flight from Anchorage to Minneapolis because that was six hours where nobody could bother me and I could read. Yeah. Just, you know, and I would, that's what I would do. That's I would read for six hours. Like I can't sleep on planes. Um, so yeah. I would, I would read. I think that that, that hum of the plane is also pretty soothing. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I just, to be completely honest, I get a good cocktail in front of me and a book and I was good to go. Yeah. I was probably just a terrible person to sit next to on the plane because the first thing <laughs> I would do would be, be break out my book. And I'm sure my vibe was like, don't bother me. I'm, re <laughs> I'm reading now. <laughs> You know, I, I was wondering, how did you originally get interested in hockey? I mean, did you play it or? I, I didn't. I had a friend in high school who was a very good player in Anchorage at the time. And I had several friends who played on the high school team. And um, so we used to go, I went to Bartlett and we used to go to the hockey games at Ben Bokey. And, um, you know, enjoy the games. And it was a raucous, loud atmosphere. This was the late 70s, so there wasn't a lot to do. Um, and so in order to better understand the game, I would ask my buddy about it. And at the time, there was no, there was barely the beginnings of cable television. Mm -hmm. And um, in, in Anchorage, um, it's just eluding me the name of, the quote-unquote cable network at the time. But anyway, they, they had New York Rangers games on them. And I remember I was asking my buddy Ron, who was a really good hockey player, um, I said, so I'm watching this, these games, Ron, and I said, this, um, I don't get this terminology. I said, this broadcaster will say several times a game that, you know, say the guy's Johnson who has the puck. He says, Johnson goes back into a zone zone. And he's like, no, he's not saying zone, zone. He's saying his own zone. <laughs> I was like, well, I really do have a lot to learn, don't I? But anyway, so I was, I, that's how I became interested in hockey. And when I started working at the Anchors Daily News, there was a hockey writer there, a guy named Ron Summers. And I think he covered like a season, maybe two seasons when I was first starting out there. And then he moved to Arizona. And so... My boss at the time said, hey, I was covering almost high school sports exclusively. And I covered a lot of high school hockey. He said, hey, you're going to 
cover the men's basketball team at UAA and I'm going to cover the hockey team. And I was like, cool. So for me, like covering the basketball team was a big step up. I was getting to cover a college team. And I got to thinking about it. My boss's name was Roger Brigham. And he was a really good mentor and super smart guy. And I thought about it in a couple of weeks and I just thought, you know, I really love hockey and I'm, I'm frankly just not a huge basketball fan. And Roger really doesn't know anything about hockey, but he loves basketball. Um, and so I went up to him and I said, just, you know, I know I'm still the newbie here. I'm the low guy on the totem pole, but it just strikes me as like, you don't really know anything about hockey. I don't really know much about basketball. I'm not interested in it. I'm really interested in hockey. Can we maybe switch what we're going to do this season coming up? And he, was, and, and he literally was like, that didn't even occur to me. That sounds like a great idea. Um, and that's how I became a hockey writer. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's just a total fluke. And But it's it, part of it is having um, a boss who was a fabulous boss who was open to ideas and would listen to you even when you were the rookie guy on the staff. So um, that was a product of just um, working for good people. And you were at the Anchorage Daily News for 40 years, right? 34. 34 years. Yeah. Yeah. What year did you start? I started on November 3rd, 1983. So was that about the same year that the Sullivan Arena opened up? Yeah, it was later that year. Sullivan Arena um, opened up in uh, the early part of 83. Yeah, I remember when I was away in college, they were building Sullivan Arena. And when they um, approved it, I remember I was talking to my dad on the phone. And um, he said, hey, they're building this arena in Anchorage. And I was like, you know, because they were trying to get the Olympics back then. That's how that arena got built. And I was like, oh, awesome. Where are they putting it? And he goes, um, by Mulcahy. And I said, how big of an arena is this? And he goes, it's going to seat like six grand for hockey and i i remember the first thing i said was where's everybody gonna park (laughs) (laughs) and he's like well that's a good question because that's not gonna be that big of a parking lot but yeah but yeah so um yeah i was i started working there shortly after um it it opened Mm -hmm. so was it always a hockey arena or was it was it something else before that no it was specifically built um as part of the bid Anchorage's bid to try to get Winter Olympics. Um, it was specifically built with that, and that's why the ice surface there was um, international-sized ice and not NHL-sized ice. It was because um, that's one of the requirements. Um, or at least it was back then. I don't know if that's true today. Um, that you had to have international-sized ice, which is 15 feet wider than NHL-sized um, ice. So it was always, it was always a. Um, multi-event venue that was principally a hockey rink um, because when you build it obviously you have to put in um, an ice system Mm -hmm. Um, that's just not something you house in a trailer out back you actually have to have a floor that has particularly in the 80s um, all the stuff underneath it so yeah it was designed that and uh, the McDonald's Center in Eagle River um, were both specifically designed um, for that. And uh, I don't know how old you are, but Anchorage actually hosted the World Junior Championships in um, 1988, 
Okay. Um, and those were the two venues used Sullivan Arena and um, back then it was called Fire Lake Arena in Eagle River. That was before Harry McDonald, who's kind of one of the fathers of Alaska hockey, died and the name was um, of that arena was changed to honor him. Um, but yeah, and, and you know, obviously I'm old, so I remember that and I covered that tournament, but there were um, lots of people who went on to become famous who played in that tournament um, that I'm not sure people realized back in the day as much as we tried to pump it up in the newspapers. And there was two newspapers at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but that tournament included a 16-year-old Yarmir Yager, um, for one. Temu Solani played in that tournament. Um, Jeremy Roenick played in that tournament. Mike Lodano played in that tournament. The Russians won the tournament, and their top line was Pavel Bure, Sergei Fedorov, and Alexander Mogilny. Um, two of those dudes are in the Hockey Hall of Fame, and Mogilny, for some reason, is not, which is ridiculous. But yeah, um, and that was all all because they were trying to get the Olympics there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, always a hockey arena. Do you remember the first time that you went to a hockey game at Sullivan arena. Yeah, it was, it was the, it was a, a tournament. I think it was just after Christmas. It was a UAA tournament. It was the 1983, 84 team. Um, Cause their captain was a guy named John Hill, who later became the, the head coach at UAA who was a buddy of mine from high school. John was a year ahead of me in high school and he'd gone out to play junior and then come back to play there. And they were playing the championship game. I want to say it was on a Sunday because I had the night off for some reason. So I went to watch the championship game. This guy, Ron Summers, was still covering the team. And it was um, UAA and North Dakota, which was the, and at the time, UAA was Division Two, And... Um, North Dakota was the Division One defending national champion, um, and um, there was a sellout. I think it might have been the first sellout they ever had there. Um, and uh, North Dakota won three to two in a in a really good game. That was the first game I ever saw there. What do you think is the most significant thing to happen in Alaska hockey? Well, I think the most. I mean, I think. Well, I'll just go kind of for now, because it's on my mind, the most important thing that's happened lately is um, the reinstatement um, due to some just phenomenal um, fundraising. And, and Kathy Bethard, who had a, uh, whose son Todd played um, at UAA, who um, with her husband, late husband Frank, was just an unbelievable advocate and supporter of um, UAA hockey just did remarkable things to help get that program reinstated because it's not, it wasn't the death knell of Alaska hockey, but when you have the aces um, go under and then, you know, you had um, budget cuts forcing UAA to kill, allegedly to kill their program. Um, it's just hard to fathom Alaska without either a professional hockey team or a college team in Anchorage, um, you know, Granite UAA has, or UAF rather has continued to play, um, and after a horrible start this season, it's really doing well lately, which is um, nice to see. But I think that's the most significant thing, is getting that program reinstated, 
and um, Matt Shasby, the former Seawolf and the former Ace, is the head coach. Um, I, I, you know, I could have a rooting interest now. I'm not a journalist. Matt Shasby is one of the good guys in hockey, um, and a guy who was one of my favorite players I ever covered um, because he had a great sense of humor and he, and he was smart and he could play. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really excited to see him resurrect that program. Um, and I just, I, I hope he does great things, but I think it's important for kids um, to see, um, you know, that there's a, there's a, there's a dream out there, a place they can go. And, you know, for a lot of kids, that is college hockey. Um, and, you know, there was a time way back in the day when that's honestly what kids like Matt Shasby grew up dreaming about was like, I want to be a Seawolf or I want to play college hockey. So I'm, I'm really psyched um, to see that, to see that back. Um, I think, the, you know, just off the top of my head, the greatest thing ever happened for Alaska hockey is, is, um, Probably just Scott Gomez bringing the Stanley Cup to town twice um, and, and showing people what was possible. Um, and if you've seen, if you were there the two times he brought it back in um, 2000 and 2003, uh, to see the number of people who came out, for instance, in 2003 to the Park Strip to see the Stanley Cup and to have their picture taken in the Stanley Cup, which was there for an entire afternoon, was literally thousands of people. And it was it just kind of blew my mind. That was actually one of the favorite things I ever did was to show you how generous a person Scott Gomez is, is when he was bringing the cup to Alaska in 2003, I just, we had this idea at work and it wasn't my idea. Um, I think it was Beth Brax, if I remember right. She almost always had the smart ideas. She was like, is there any way we could spend all 24 hours with a cup? And I was like, I don't know. You know, There's going to be some parties and stuff, and things might get out of hand, and he might not want a reporter around there. <laughs> and she was like, well, I was like, it won't hurt to ask. I mean, it's not going to offend, offend him when I ask. And I asked him, and he was like, yeah, sure. He literally said, yeah, sure. That's great. <laughs> and he's like, I'm doing this, you know, I trust you. And I was like, okay, I might have to turn an eye every now and then. <laughs> um, and Beth Bragg, it was her idea, because you know what she told me? I said, Beth, there's going to be, I'm going to be surrounded by beer and drinks for most of these 24 hours and surrounded by hockey people who know me. Mm. I said, there's going to be, I'm going to get a lot of pressure to have a couple of beers. And she said, you can have a couple of beers, just don't get drunk. And I was like, I can do that. <laughs> so, so I spent, I spent literally, I would say, uh, 22 and a half hours with the cup. There was a little period at about four in the morning um, where I think Scott went to bed for like an hour and he was at his house in Airport Heights, and I actually lived about a half mile from him as the crow flies. Um, so I hustled home and took a took a shower and grabbed something to eat and like didn't go to bed and went right back to his house. Um, and 
then spent at that point another like 14 hours with him and the cup. Um, but yeah, that was a fun story. But it was, a, I think it was a just a monumental deal in Alaska when you just saw the sheer number of people who wanted to see that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it, one, it's a Stanley Cup, it's super cool. And, um, and two, it's like, what an, what a kind of outpouring of support for a guy. Being a sports reporter and also being such a fan of hockey, what was it like, you know, maybe, maybe aside from the partying and all that, like being next to the cup? You know, it's funny. It just wasn't, to me, it wasn't, I was just strictly in reporter mode. I just, and I've never been a big, um, like fan fan. Like I just, I like to watch hockey, but like, I don't have a team. I never, and that's part of growing up as a reporter, I think, is I just, I never had a team. Um, I still to this day don't have a team. Um, So I didn't think anything of it. You know, I went, I looked at it, I read the names on it. And I, um, I, I remember somebody asked me afterwards, it's like, well, did you get your picture taken with it? And I was like, you know, I didn't. I, it just didn't occur to me to get my picture taken with it. Um, and I remember I wasn't around when he brought the cut back in 2000, I was like on like a vacation or something. Cause I wasn't there, but I think it was Beth Bragg told me, um, of the daily news, told me a story about seeing Dean Larson, oddly enough, um, at some event where Scotty had brought the cup and it might've been at the park strip. I don't know. And somebody said to, according to Beth, somebody said to, to Dean, um, like, hey, aren't you going to grab it or something? And like, it's the Stanley Cup. And he just looked out and said, not worthy. Me- meaning I didn't win this. I'm a hockey player and I didn't win this. I'm not going to touch it. Yeah. You know, I thought that's very Dean Larson. What do you mean that's very Dean Larson? Is, is he, I've never met him. Is he a... super modest? Okay. Okay. Um, just, just, just really modest, and I think was always uncomfortable talking about himself, which is natural. I think it's probably hard to talk about yourself. He's a super, um, just a really good dude. Has a really cutting sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, just a real wonderful smartass. Um, <laughs> a wonderful smartass. Yeah, <laughs> but, but just super modest. Uh, yeah, just a very humble person. So years ago, my, my dad had a competition out on Montague Island. It was called the Montague cup. And Mm -hmm. it was, it was kind of based on at least in part based on, you know, the Stanley cup. Uh, but on Montague Island, he, the competition was, you know, the biggest buck deer, the biggest, (laughs) uh, silver salmon, the, um, the best wave for surfing. And then I think there was a train wreck award, you know, so the person that just got the hammered, the most hammered throughout the entire time, but he had this cup, uh, that was maybe like, I don't know, like a, like a foot or maybe a foot and a half, two feet, like uh, tall. It was, it was smaller. It was, it was kind of like the Stanley cup, maybe like one tier of the Stanley cup. And, uh, it was like copper and, um, it went on for a couple of years and the winners, you know, they had their names inscribed on that cup. <laughs> oh, God. God. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know 
why that triggered this memory, but remember I was telling you about the guy, Sean Rowe, that played for the Anchorage Aces? The guy yeah. said, can you outrun a bullet? Yeah. I once I once ran into him in the grocery store. At the, um, the cars, I guess at the Safeway now, the cars on Gamble on a Sunday. And it was just, just after noon. And I was there and I was grabbing some groceries. And I going down an aisle and here comes Sean Rowe. And I was like, hey, Rosie, how you doing? He's like, hey, Doyle. I was like, how's it going? He's like, good. I got some guys painting my house today. He says, so I was going to come get him some beer. And of course, we're standing in a grocery store. And I was like, oh. And he said, it, it was like 11.50 or something. I think that was the deal. And he said, mm-hmm. but the liquor store next door doesn't open till noon. I was like, oh, okay. He goes, he goes uh, I didn't know that. I got there like five minutes ago, so like quarter to noon. He goes, I was fifth in line. (laughs) 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 He was was just incredulous. I was like, welcome to Fairview. (laughs) I actually used to live in Fairview and that would be one of the cars, you know, that I would go to all the time. And I can, I can attest to that. I I have also been fifth in line. (laughs) I got a buddy who still lives in Alaska who always refers to that as um, Cars Beirut. <laughs> I think there's a lot of names for it. I think there it are, goes by sketchy are. cars as well. Yeah, there was, yeah. It was ghetto cars for a while. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was, yeah, Sean Rowe. He was just a beauty. Just a beauty. <laughs> well, Doyle, you know, that does it for my questions. This is, this has been amazing, man. I, I really, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate uh, the stories, the memories. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, man, I appreciate your reaching out. It was wonderful to talk to you. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash crude magazine. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 